Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Tuesday, March 7th reading of the Greeley Tribune. My name is Mike Fearberg. Today we will be reading the following stories for you. Crews are nearing the finish of the renovated Library Innovation Center in downtown Greeley. Campaign finance law violation complaint against the Greeley Evans School District 6 dismissed. Affidavit says Windsor man stole an 81-year-old's debit card and spends $5,000. Panelists discuss the impacts of rising water prices on northern Colorado agriculture. And we'll have this Thursday and Friday's high school state basketball schedule as well. All right, our top story in the Greeley Tribune today is that crews are nearing the finish of the renovated Library Innovation Center in downtown Greeley. A new destination for downtown Greeley is nearing completion as crews finish construction of the High Plains Library District's Library Innovation Center, which is expected to open in May. The 62,000-square-foot Library Innovation Center, or LINC, link, will feature traditional library space, maker spaces, an events area, a courtyard, innovation spaces, a children's museum, a recording studio, and more. In the library area, patrons will be welcomed by a river of books with curved bookshelves that are just one feature of the water-themed design of the building. The river of books design continues into the children's section on the north side of the building. On the outside of the building, perforations on a metal screen will display the northern Colorado watershed, allowing natural light in during the day and glowing at night. Crews are already moving in furniture and even beginning to shelve some books as the final construction is being completed. The district broke ground in September of 2021 after purchasing the former location of the Greeley Tribune for $4 million the month before. The Tribune moved to 2416th Street, Suite C, with Tribune Mail now accepted at P.O. Box 337228, Greeley, Colorado, 80633-7228. The district's former downtown location was torn down to construct the Doubletree by Hilton Greeley at Lincoln Park, located at 919 7th Street. The library has temporarily maintained a downtown branch in a small building at 1012 11th Street. City officials celebrated the hotel and conference center as a way to attract more conferences and events to Greeley. The link is getting similar praise as its innovative features are expected to attract more people to downtown Greeley. City officials recently approved an updated strategic plan for downtown Greeley, which identifies three sub-areas. Central Downtown in the Northwest, University Uptown to the South, and the Railway District, mostly east of 7th Avenue. The link will sit in Central Downtown at the edge of the Railway District, which officials envision as a makerspace district. The link will feature multiple makerspaces, 
or areas that offer patrons an opportunity to create in different media using a variety of equipment, including one near the entrance with laser cutters, 3D printers, and UV printers. At the north end of the building, innovation spaces will be available with a wet and dirty space where classes could be taught on everything from oil changes, the innovation spaces have garage doors opening to the outside, to blood spatter analysis. A loud and dirty space will be available for woodworking, including a table saw and other tools. James Molina, High Plains Library District Community Relations and Marketing Manager, said the innovation spaces will be flexible for all kinds of crafting. Across from the innovation spaces is a soundproof recording studio with rooms where guests can record podcasts and videos with a green screen. Molina said the library worked with Philip Van Drunen of the Bike Shop Agency in Greeley to configure that space. A centrally located arts and crafts space will also connect to an interactive children's museum installation on the second floor. The installation will feature LED panels with RGB lighting control, a paper airplane, and rocket launcher cabinet, and an interactive track with ball feeders. Workstations will also be available. Wes Bruce, a former Greeley resident and previously an artist-in-residence at the Children's Museum of Denver, is working on an art installation included with the children's exhibit. He's also working with the library's water theme in the space. He's creating a whole language for water here, Melina said. Among the planned features are special sounds or music that can be heard only in certain locations in the installation and coordinated buttons to trigger a holographic display. On the west side of the building, the link will be able to host up to 192 people in an event space with an elevated platform for speakers or performers. Molina said the space could even accommodate conventions at the Doubletree that may need additional space. Construction is expected to be completed in April. A grand opening is tentatively planned in mid-May. Campaign finance law violation complaint against Greeley-Evans School District 6 dismissed. The Colorado Secretary of State's office dismissed a complaint of campaign finance law violations on Monday against Greeley-Evans School District 6, but the ruling came with a caveat on how the school system presented information related to a ballot measure on a mill levy override. Deputy Secretary of State Christopher P. Beale made the ruling in a nine-page document posted on the Transparency in Contribution and Expenditure Reporting System, or TRACER. That's the public disclosure website for campaign finance in Colorado. Back in the fall, Greeley-Evans School District 6 resident Stacy Castile filed the complaints, alleging District 6 made prohibited expenditures to urge voters to approve or vote yes on a November 2022 ballot measure to extend the mill levy override for another 10 years, Otherwise, it would have expired at the end of this year. Castile filed paperwork in January with the Secretary of State's office to run for a school board seat in District 6. Beale's ruling Monday found the school district did not make prohibited expenditures because the Fair Campaign Practices Act allows a government agency to expend monies or make contributions to dispense a factual summary that includes arguments both for and against the ballot measure, and does not contain an opinion in favor of or against the issue. Bale also said, though the district's brochure, 
which contained information on the mill levy override, is only just barely within the statutory exception for factual summaries of ballot measures. The ruling said the brochure on the second side presents a list of pros and cons in plain text font with no graphics or effort at rhetorical emphasis. But the front side of the brochure is another matter. Beale's analysis calls the front of the brochure a one-sided presentation with graphics to emphasize the school district's claim as to the benefits that the mill levy override provided over the five years since it was enacted in 2017 and the benefits from its continuation. The deputy's critique originates with the front side of the brochure lacking any similar display on the costs to property owners from the mill levy override or the impacts of the costs might have had. No objective, dispassionate reader could understand the brochure to be anything other than advocacy in favor of passage of the proposed continuation of the override, Beale's analysis said. Indeed, as the citizen complaint pointed out, the recipients of this brochure clearly understood it to be a call for a vote in favor of the mill levy override. In an emailed statement, Castile said though she was hoping for a different decision, the ruling was just what she expected. Jenna Griswold abuses her authority as Secretary of State to support liberal groups, such as Greeley-Evans School District 6, by protecting them from violating campaign finance laws, Castile wrote. Regardless, they should have just done the right thing. Castile also said the fact the school district was taken to task for the brochure, yet the motion was dismissed, gives insight into the standards Griswold has set for her staff. Despite the ruling, District 6 should not be using school resources to promote the support for the mill levy override, she continued in her emailed statement. The district continues to show a lack of transparency in their activities and situations to push their agenda. This is something I will continue to fight against and another reason I am running for school board this November. The override ballot measure was approved with nearly 70% of the vote. On January 30th, the Elections Division of the Secretary of State Office filed a motion to dismiss the complaints based on insufficient evidence to support the violations. That motion then advanced the process to Beale as the Deputy, of Se- Deputy Secretary of State to review the complaints. District 6 Chief of Communications Teresa Myers said Monday evening, while the district is happy with the affirmation from the state that the district did not commit a com- campaign finance violation, Castile, as the complainant, has 35 days to file for judicial review of Beale's ruling. As of Monday night, Castile had not indicated if she will file for a judicial review. Myers and Assistant Director of Communications Casey Pearson were mentioned in Beale's ruling. Pearson created the factual summary for the ballot measure at Myers' direction and with input from Myers and District 6 leadership, according to Beale's analysis. Myers also said Monday the district constantly reviews what it does and will take the state's ruling into consideration if it has to create similar literature in the future. She added the district feels it has a moral obligation when it runs a tax measure to provide factual information to voters on how much money has been spent and how it will be spent in the future. We own that information and we felt it was essential to get it to our community, Myers said. I'm sure there's always room for improvement. Myers said the district provided information on taxpayer impact from the mill levy override to the public in public presentations. We can look at the way we format these, she said. We're happy to consider that and look at it. 
it is essential for our taxpayers to understand how the money was spent. Affidavit says Windsor man steals an 81-year-old's debit card and spends $5,000. A 42-year-old man is facing five counts of identity theft after allegedly stealing a debit card from a family friend and going on a spending spree across Windsor and Greeley. Windsor police spoke with a woman on November 21st in regard to a bank account at Points West Community that she shares with her husband. She reported a debit card in her 81-year-old husband's name was used for multiple unauthorized transactions, a total of 20 of them, and they cost $5,000. Four transactions came from Ace Hardware at 1245 Main Street in Windsor on four dates spanning from April to November of 2021. Management at the business obtained surveillance video for a transaction on November 9th. An officer reviewed the footage of a white man with dirty blonde hair, a white watch, and a tattoo on his upper right arm, making the transaction of $381, according to arrest records. On November 12th, there was another unauthorized transaction at Target at 4400 Center Place Drive in Greeley. The officer reviewed video surveillance from the store, which captured a white man with dirty brown hair and a goatee, making a transaction of $169.52. At the Safeway on 1535 Main Street in Windsor, there were three transactions. One was $86.99 on August 22nd. One was $193 on November 10th. And one was for $492.39 on November 13th, according to the affidavit. A review of the surveillance footage showed a man, later identified as 42-year-old Stephen Patrick Tracy, matching the physical description of the man in Ace Hardware and Target footage. On December 20th, the officer spoke with a representative from the bank who said they were investigating fraudulent charges to the 81-year-old man's card. In 2018, he was issued a debit card that was valid until 2021. An error in the system logged his address to a location in the 200 block of Pelican Cove, which was wrong. In 2021, his new card was then sent to the incorrect address, where someone activated the debit card over the phone. Bank representatives searched the phone number and found it belonged to Tracy of Horace Mann Insurance, according to arrest records. The officer found out Windsor police have had previous contact with Tracy, who resides at the residence on Pelican Cove. Tracy's driver's license photo appears to match the appearance of the man in the surveillance footage, according to the officer. The victims met with the officer on December 21st. After reviewing a still photograph from the Ace Hardware transaction, the 81-year-old man said he did not recognize Tracy, but his wife recognized Tracy's tattoo and watch. She said she knew someone who had the same tattoo and watch by the name of Steve, a former son-in-law to a friend who recently got divorced, the affidavit said. She also confirmed he lived on Pelican Cove. The couple confirmed Tracy had no legal reason to have possession of the debit card. The officer met with Tracy on February 21st. During the meeting, Tracy told the officer he received the debit card from a recruiter for an online poker and gambling site, According to the arrest records, the recruiter was using the same name as the 81-year-old victim, Tracy said. 
He admitted to using the card to make multiple transactions at local stores, including Ace Hardware and Target. He also said he knew the victims very well. The officer booked Tracy into the Weld County Jail on suspicion of five counts of identity theft, crimes against an at-risk person, unauthorized use of a financial transaction device, and criminal possession of a financial device. He posted $2,500 bond the day after his arrest, according to online records. Tracy has an advisement hearing set for 9 a.m. on May 11th. Panelists discuss impacts of rising water prices on northern Colorado agriculture. As rising water prices in northern Colorado increase the strain on local agricultural operations, innovative practices will be the key to sustaining local farms and ranches. Four speakers at the Poudre River Forum on Friday at the University of Northern Colorado discussed the kinds of practices they believe can support agriculture and areas where they believe communities should tread with caution. Adam Jokerst, Rocky Mountain Regional Director for Westwater Research and Greeley's former Deputy Director for Water Resources, opened the panel on water and agriculture with a presentation on the forces driving up water prices in northern Colorado. Northern Colorado water, Jokers said, is the most expensive water in the state and among the most expensive water in the nation. It's also where most water trading is occurring in the state, he added. As the population continues to grow in the region, more municipal water providers are purchasing water rights to ensure they will have water for new residents. About two-thirds of water is bought from agriculture, and about 83% of it is going to municipal use, Jokers said. Most of the state's water comes from the West Slope, which from which the Front Range diverts about 500,000 acre-feet each year. With concerns about Colorado River supply and the current political environment, Diverting more water does not seem likely, Jokers said. Instead, water districts have largely worked on projects to create storage to meet the rising demand. But these projects have only grown in cost over the years, also driving up the prices of existing supplies, Jokers said. He mentioned the Northern Integrated Supply Project, or NISP, as one of the projects in which costs have turned up to be three to five times more expensive than originally projected. Finally, 40 different water providers in the region are competing for the same water resources. That drives up prices, Jokerst said. However, not all water prices have been increasing at such a rate. Jokerst displayed a graph showing that as water shares that can be bought and used by municipal providers have increased in price, untreated water that cannot be accepted for municipal dedication has held stable. Not all water is created equal, he said. Rob Johnson, a real estate broker at A. Bruce Johnson & Associates and owner of Eaton Organics, said land transactions have a similar trend. Along much of the Northern Front Range, municipal interests and developers are conducting most of the land transactions. East of U.S. 85, however, many of the transactions are agricultural users or investors. This is because water in the area is not usable for municipalities or developers. Agriculture supports billions of dollars of economic activity in the region, including supporting dairy farms that supply milk to value-added dairy products, such as Laprino Foods in Greeley and Noosa Yogurt in Bellevue, according to Rob Graves, a co-founder of Noosa and owner of Morning Fresh Dairy Farm. Graves, a fourth-generation dairy farmer, said this is part of why supporting agriculture with continued access to water 
is so important. Though the region was previously growing more feed than there were cows, Graves said, dairies showed up to meet the demand of these new companies, bringing in more cows than feed, and fueling demand for agriculture. To keep agriculture alive, Graves identified two factors that could help support local farmers. For one, more water storage is needed. Federal regulations have slowed the ability of such projects to work quickly, Graves said. Federal permitting on NISP, for example, began in 2004, but didn't get final approval until last December. Second, Graves said Northern Water could aid farmers in cities working with farmers to rent water by giving guidance on how much water they expect to allocate over the next two or three years. With the current process in which allocations are announced at the April board meeting, Graves said it feels a lot like the lottery. Johnson said another important factor to keep agriculture preserved in the area is taking a careful look at how we extract or get value out of every drop. This includes irrigation improvements and regenerative agriculture, such as cover crops and reducing tillage. Johnson also praised NISP with its water secure program to bring conservation easements that require water to stay on farmlands and the City of Greeley's water marketing program in which it leases out additional water in wet years to local farms. These innovative practices, he said, help prevent buy and dry practices that are shrinking agriculture. As water scarcity becomes a growing concern, some have turned to vertical farming as a water-efficient way to grow crops year-round. But this practice comes with trade-offs, explained Reed Maynard, a Colorado State University graduate student in the Interdisciplinary Training, Education, and Research in Food Energy Water Systems program. Vertical farming systems, usually hydroponics, involve growing crops, usually leafy greens, in a vertical space to stack plants in a controlled environment. These systems, Maynard noted, require clean water that cannot be taken from agricultural ditches. They also typically require heavy lifting, heating, sorry, heavy lighting, heating, and cooling, dehumidification, and a lot of structures. Gotham Greens, for example, is spending more than $10 million to construct its facility in Windsor. In his research, Maynard found that vertical farming is much more water efficient, but up to 12 times more energy intensive. That creates a lot of pollution. In more efficient closed greenhouse systems, they're still about five times more energy intensive, he said. I'm a little bit skeptical of these systems, he said. It's going to be community to community. The consumers, producers, water providers, they're all going to have to consider what is right for our community. In high school sports, here's Thursday's and Friday's high school state basketball schedule. This Thursday, March 9th, Boys basketball has the 3A state quarterfinals at the University of Denver, Highland versus Skyview Academy at 1.15 p.m. Windsor Charter versus Centauri at 8.30 p.m. And the 4A state semifinals are at the Denver Coliseum, where Resurrection Christian takes on Lutheran at 4 p.m. Also on Thursday in girls basketball, the 1A state quarterfinals at the Bank of Colorado Arena features Briggsdale versus Fleming at 8.45 a.m. The 3A state quarterfinals at the University of Denver features Platte Valley against Colorado Springs Christian at 11.45 a.m. The 4A state semifinals at the Denver Coliseum 
University versus Devlin at 11 a.m. The 5A state semifinals at the Denver Coliseum is Windsor against Glenwood Springs at 5.45 p.m. and Roosevelt versus Durango at 7.15 p.m. Moving on to Friday, March 10th, in boys basketball, the 5A state semifinals will be at the Denver Coliseum, Windsor versus Mesa Ridge at 7.15 p.m. Now, teams that advance past games on Thursday and Friday compete in state title games on Saturday at various times and locations to be announced. In college sports, the short staff Bears nevertheless beat Portland State 84-80 in the Big Sky Tournament's first round. University of Northern Colorado graduate student Dalen Kuntz smiled as he placed the Bears sticker on the next line of the Big Sky Tournament bracket. With a 40-minute game and five players on the court at a time, the team is guaranteed 200 more minutes of basketball. Number 8 seed UNC defeated number 7 Portland State 84-80 in a back-and-forth game defined by physicality, trips to the line, and atypical lineups. We were in dire straits and foul trouble, so we were kind of mixing the matching, Bears coach Steve Smiley said. The lineups were really goofy tonight because of foul trouble, but everyone stepped up and did their job when their number was called. The Bears were without graduate student Riley Abercrombie, who didn't make the trip. He experienced a season-ending injury in the regular season finale. Junior Theo Hughes ended up hurt and was pulled at halftime. Grad student Matt Johnson might have led the team with a season-high 22 points, but he had to sit for a while after he had a hard landing. Oh, and there was plenty of foul trouble to go around. It felt like the officials got paid per whistle. Both teams combined for 44 fouls, with Kuntz and senior Dalton Knecht picking up two fouls early in the game, while Hughes and freshman Brock Wisney both got three before the half. He came out and I said, Dalen, you're going to play with two fouls. I really don't care. You're going to play with two fouls for the first half, so be ready to go, Smiley said. We put him back in, which a lot of coaches don't want to do, but we know that guys like Dalen and Dalton, if they're not in, especially with a guy like Riley out, it's just going to be hard to score. UNC staff managed the lineup effectively and the players limited further contact and it worked. Beyond the rotation issues, the game was tough. Northern Colorado led for more than 31 minutes in the game, including an 11-point advantage early in the second half, but the Vicks never went away. It took took the team time for the big three to really get scoring. Johnson had 13 points at the half, Kuntz and Connect combined for 2 out of 11 from the floor. Commentator and former Big Sky coach Joe Cravens described the, described the first half for both teams as clunky. Smiley said that's typical for matchups with Portland State, and he felt like the team did well once it settled down and got used to the press. It also drew fouls of its own and scored from the line. Connect sealed the victory, making a free throw with 3.4 seconds left. Kuntz went 10 out of 11 from the foul stripe. (coughs) Then, the bench finished with one of its best performances this season. Wisney recorded his first career double-double with 11 points and 10 rebounds. Junior Jamel Melvin added three baskets and three boards. Connor Creech played 29 minutes in place of Abercrombie. The sophomore scored a couple of times and, as usual, disrupted the Vicks on the defensive end. 
Overall, Smiley said it was great to see the effort from his team, especially the bench and the younger athletes. They out-rebounded Portland State, dove for loose balls, and finished with multiple stretches of consecutive stops. I am about as proud of this team tonight as any team I've ever been part of in really any capacity, coach or player, Smiley said. We're like a triage unit out there, limping around with a bunch of young guys, but I was really proud of how we found a way to get that done because at any point in time we could have just said, you know what, it's just a little bit too hard tonight. It wasn't. The Bears will now face number two Montana State in a rematch of last year's championship game. That happens at 8 p.m. Sunday and will be shown on ESPN Plus, a subscription service. Notable stats of the game, Matt Johnson had 22 points and four rebounds. Dalton Connect had 18 points, six rebounds and a block. Dalen Kuntz had 18 points, five rebounds and two assists. UNC shooting was 26 out of 60 from the floor, seven for 19 from three points and 25 for 31 from the foul line. Uh, Portland State was 31 for 68 from the floor, 8 for 23 on three-pointers, and 10 for 16 at the foul line. In business news, Vail Resorts is closing 19 retail locations in Aspen, Snowmass, and Telluride. SSI Ventures, the retail arm of Broomfield-based Vail Resorts, has informed the state it plans to close 19 equipment rental and retail locations in Aspen, Telluride, and Stonemass Village, permanently eliminating 69 jobs. The closures, which will happen once the ski season ends, are tied to the company's decision not to renew store leases for another season. SSI Venture informed the Colorado Department of Labor of this in a Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act letter dated February 27th. As our leases in the Aspen area come up for renewal at the end of this winter season, we needed to make a long-term decision regarding future strategy of our retail operations in the Aspen market. At that time, we decided to close down our retail operations in this market in order to focus company resources on serving our core retail markets, said Glenn Stallman, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Vail Resorts. Similar letters were filed for the Telluride and Snowmass Village locations. Stallman said the closures are permanent and that employees were informed of, about them in November, and Vail Resorts was proactively working with each employee to support them through the transition. Specialty Sports Venture, which became SSI Ventures, got its start in 1994 when the Gart family acquired Telluride Sports, Colorado Ski and Golf, and Grand West Outfitters. In 1998, SSV merged with the retail and rental operations of Vail Resorts. In 2010, per the terms of the initial agreement, Vail Resorts paid $31 million to buy out the 30% share held by Ken and Tom Gart and gain full control of the company, which had more than 145 retail and rental locations at the time. Closures for Aspen Sports include the retail stores at the Hyatt and St. Regis in Aspen, the Snowmass Mall and Viewline in Snowmass, and the Aspen Sports Demo, Aspen Sports Tune, Aspen Sports Valet stores in Snowmass. The Telluride Sports locations closing are located at Camel's Garden, Cimarron Lodge, Franz Klammer, Gondola Plaza, Main Street, and The Peaks. Telluride Sports has been operating since 1972, and the closures will darken a large share of Telluride Sports equipment rental facilities. Branded retail locations closing include stores for Burton, 
Neve Sports, Patagonia, and the North Face Telluride, as well as stores for Patagonia and the North Face in Snowmass. Vail Resorts Retail has made the decision to close all of its retail and rental locations in Telluride and Aspen in order to focus on other strategic priorities. We are grateful to our employees and partners in both markets and are working with impacted team members to find new employment opportunities within the Vail Resorts network following this season, said Laura Bonfilio, a spokesperson for Vail Resorts, in an email. Vail Resorts does not own or operate resorts in Aspen, Telluride, or Snowmass, but the Telluride Ski Resort, which is privately owned, is included as an offering in the company's Epic Pass. Well, it's March Madness time, and if you're betting big on March Madness, don't forget the taxes. Online sports betting is out in a lot more states this year, and people are encountering legalized gambling in new ways. But whether you're wagering on March Madness from your couch or headed to Vegas for a weekend at the tables, you're going to have to pay taxes on your winnings. The IRS has very clear-cut rules on gambling income that predate the recent explosion of the sports betting industry. In short, the proceeds from a successful wager are taxable income, just like your paycheck or money you make in investments. While you can write off some gambling losses if you itemize, that deduction cannot exceed the amount of your winnings. The U.S. tax code is very broad in how it defines what's taxable. Everything that you earn is taxable unless it's otherwise said not to be said April Walker, lead manager for tax practice and ethics with the American Institute of CPAs. Here are some considerations to keep in mind if you're lucky enough to win. Gambling establishments, including digital operations like online sportsbooks, usually provide both you and the IRS with a record of your taxable winnings. This statement is known as W2G. It includes an overview of your gambling winnings along with any withholding you elected when you gave the establishment your tax information. Gambling businesses are required to report payouts they made that meet certain thresholds according to the IRS. So, you are likely to receive a W-2G form if you won $1,200 or more playing bingo or slots, netted $1,500 or more from Keno, exceeded $5,000 in winnings from a poker tournament, or obtained $600 or more in another gambling endeavor, such as sports betting, and the payout was at least 300 times the amount you put on the line. It's worth noting these requirements do not cover every potential situation in which you might win a bet. For example, your winnings might be below these thresholds, but be mindful you are supposed to pay taxes on anything you win. So if you get a W-2G, you can be sure the IRS knows about whatever the casino or sports book has listed there. Similarly, the co-worker who organized your office March Madness, March Madness bracket pool is not very likely to send you and the IRS records of your participation. If you win, though, technically it is still income, says Walker, who's based in North Carolina, but she adds, that's between you and the priest, how you handle it from there. Now, you can deduct gambling losses, but there are some significant challenges. For starters, you cannot deduct more than the amount you took home in gaming revenue. If you're in the red for the year, don't expect to recoup those losses with tax deductions. In addition, you won't be able to write off gambling losses unless you itemize your deductions. However, most people do not itemize now. They choose instead to take the standard deduction. That knocks a set amount off your taxable income without you having to do anything. 
For, two, for 2022 tax returns, the ones you're working on now, the standard deduction is $25,900 for married couples filing jointly. If your gambling losses, combined with all your other deductions, don't reach at least that number, you might not want to write off those bad bets. Another consideration, if you're a professional gambler who makes a good chunk of your living from placing bets, then you may have more freedom to deduct your losses. This, however, requires a whole different tax approach that isn't likely to make very much sense for casual gamblers. Another factor to consider when writing off gambling losses is that while a casino or sportsbook might send you a record of your gains, they are unlikely to break down what you lost. You need to keep your own records for these purposes, the IRS says. To deduct your losses, you must keep an accurate diary or similar recording of your gambling winnings and losses and be able to provide receipts, tickets, statements, or other records that show the amount of both your winnings and your losses, the agency says on its website. Walker says it's a good idea to be vigilant with record-keeping anyway. If you have documentation, you can ensure your information jibes with whatever, whatever record you might receive from a casino. If you have gambling winnings, it's worthwhile to understand as well the tax considerations in the state where you lived, where you live, and where you gambled. While Walker says you're most likely to have to settle up with your home state, tax rates and reporting requirements vary widely across the United States. Even FanDuel, one of the country's leading online sports betting platforms, does not hazard a guess about how states will handle, handle gambling proceeds. It depends on the state, FanDuel says on its website, adding you might have to submit tax information to one or more state taxing authorities, even if you legally live in another state. Now, from the opinion page, here's an editorial originally printed by the Boston Herald. Even by Washington, D.C. standards, the situation is absurd. On one hand, a bipartisan group of senators is discussing changes to Social Security, including the possibility of raising the retirement age to extend its solvency. On the other, the Supreme Court is weighing the legality of President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, the cost of which is close to half a trillion dollars. As loan forgiveness advocates and activists profess, students face crippling debt from high tuition costs. Paying back their loans makes it all but impossible to buy a house or take other important steps on the path to the American dream. Representative Ayanna Presley told Politico's Massachusetts Playbook that failure is not an option. I am not conceding defeat, Presley said, hours after justices heard arguments over the debt relief plan. She and Senator Elizabeth Warren spent two years pressing Joe, President Joe Biden to enact. Debt relief would be transformational, Presley said, for those struggling to buy homes or pay for child care. It would also have a transformational effect on the national debt, all but guaranteeing that spending cuts will be on the table in the future for social service and other programs. While the High Court is debating whether Biden's student loan forgiveness plan is justified under the HEROES Act of 2003, much of the argument around it hinge on fairness. It's allegedly unfair to make student borrowers have to pay back the loans they took out, and it's unfair that those who took out huge loans have big chunks of their budget eaten by those payments. But it's also unfair that people who worked to pay off their loans and did are out in the cold. So are those who never went to college, but whose taxes will bear the brunt of the $400 billion bill down the road. It's also unfair for seniors on Social Security to have to worry if they'll have enough money to live on. 
They've worked for decades, paid into the system, and now fear the fund will become insolvent. The specter has been raised for years through several administrations, and the can keeps getting kicked down the road. The retirement age used to be 65. Now it's 67. If you need to retire before that, you lose benefits. The Biden administration has no qualms about passing a $1.2 trillion infrastructure law and promoting a $400 billion student loan forgiveness plan, but has made no move to bolster Social Security with a similar influx of cash. A report released by the Congressional Budget Office earlier this month warned that Social Security Trust Fund could run out of money by 2032. That's one year earlier than previously expected, previously expected, without changes to existing policies. As The Hill reported, the senators involved in the bipartisan group say they are trying to keep the talks from becoming politicized. Cuts in spending will always be politicized when lawmakers use fiscal policies to promote their own agendas and court-prized voting blocks. Student loan forgiveness has grabbed the national mic and isn't letting go. Funding Social Security deserves the same level of advocacy. The preceding was an editorial originally written by the Boston Herald Editorial Board and published by the Greeley Tribune. We now turn to the obituary page. Our family is grieved to announce the loss of our beloved patriarch, Willard Burbach. He was passionate and successful in everything he put his mind to, whether in the sale barn, the rodeo arena, or the racetrack. After a long battle with dementia, he died peacefully on Saturday, February 11th, at the age of 82. His celebration will be held at Producers Livestock Marketing Association, 711 Oast in Greeley, Colorado, on June 3rd at 11 a.m. Donations and contributions can be sent to the Weld County Livestock Association in Eaton. Marie Julia Gudinas Gossman, age 93, died of natural causes related to dementia on Saturday, February 25th at Brookdale Meridian Senior Living Center in Englewood. Marie was born on September 5, 1929, to William Henry and Louisa Julia Gunther Gudinas. She was educated in Palmyra and Rochester, New York, and graduated from Nazareth Academy. After a brief employment at Eastman Kodak, she met and married James Leo Gossman on October 19, 1957, at Sacred Heart Cathedral. Together, they had four daughters, Martha Mary, Anne Margaret, Ruth Catherine, and Carla Francis. They moved to Greeley in October of 1969. Marie spent much of her adult life volunteering at various service agencies in both Rochester and Greeley. She attended courses at Ames Community College and the Denver Catholic Biblical School. She was involved with various activities at St. Mary Catholic Church and served eight years on the Elder Hostel Advisory Board at the University of Northern Colorado. Marie was preceded in death by her parents, her husband, her sister, Ruth Godinas, and two daughters, Anne, Deppi, and Carla Gossman. She is survived by her daughters, Martha, and her husband, Mike Stroman of Highlands Ranch, Ruth and her husband, Jamie Mannon Gossman of Pangburn, Arkansas, grandchildren, Tim and his wife, Sarah Stroman, Audrey Deppi, Laura and her uh, and her husband Mario Mario Stefanina, and great grandsons Callan Stroman, Giuseppe, and Elio Stefanina. 
There will be no public services. Julian Ralph Kler, born February 21, 1925 in Lucerne, Colorado, died on his 98th birthday, February 21, 2023 in Greeley. Preceded in death by his beloved wife of 75 years, Nadine, his parents Carl and Florentina Kler, and his seven siblings, Emma, Edward, Albert, Mary, Robert, Rose, and August. His children and their families survive him. Carl and his wife, Denise Kler, Kathleen Kler, Kristen, Christine and her husband, Greg Farrell, Karen and her husband, Jim Schneider. Eight grandchildren, Jennifer Roll, Ryan Kler, Nathan Compsia, Aaron Compsia, Hakon Hawkinson, Kimberly Kepler, Allison Farrell, and Emily Schneider. Sixteen great-grandchildren, three great-great-grandchildren, and numerous cousins, nieces, and nephews. He was baptized at Our Savior's Lutheran Church and was the oldest member of the congregation. He graduated in 1942 from Greeley High. After serving as a civilian radio corpsman, he joined the 8th Armored Division. He was awarded the Bronze Star for Bravery during the Battle of the Bulge. His reserve unit was called up during the Korean War to Camp Polk, Louisiana. He worked 30 years for AT&T across the country, rising to long-line management by hard work and focus. While in New York City, he worked on the first Telstar communication satellite and in San Francisco, the Transoceanic Cable Network. After retiring back to Greeley, AT&T International contracted with him to teach technical classes in Saudi Arabia in 1984. He was the vice president of Rocky Mountain Communication Consultants. His life of service included volunteering at the Greeley uh, Chamber of Commerce Visitor Center, the Information Desk of NOCO Medical Center, and the American Cancer Society. Recognized for over 4,300 hours in the RSVP shopping program, Triangle Cross Ranch, a Christian residential community, and performing maintenance at Our Saviors. He was introduced, he was inducted into the Greeley Weld Senior Foundation Hall of Fame in 2009. In 2015, France recognized his role in their country's liberation, bestowing him with the Legion of Honor Medal. The American flag was flown over the Capitol building in his honor. He was quietly proud of his military service and took part in the Freedom Honor Flight and recorded an interview of his experiences on YouTube. Julian was a humble, honorable man whose unwavering focus throughout his life was on his faith, his family, and service to others. The family thanks Grace Point for their years of love and care, Dr. Evans, Pastor John Knudsen, and Pathways Hospice. Memorials to be given to the Weld County Food Bank. Lugardita Esperanza Garda Leon, age 80, of Greeley, passed away February 27th. She was born April 26, 1942, in Blanca, Colorado, to Manuel D. and Telesfora Garcia. At the age of eight, her family moved to the Severance area. On October 20th, 1965, she married Orlando Leon at the St. Peter Catholic Church. In her early years, Garda worked at the Bracewell Grocery Store, was an Avon representative, and cleaned homes and businesses. She was a QVC queen, buying many items from the TV. She loved to shop and enjoyed her time with the grandkids and supporting their activities. Fourth of July barbecues were a favorite event she hosted. She loved to garden, volunteered at Room at the Inn, and was a devout Catholic at St. Peter's Catholic Church. 
Survivors include her daughter, Michelle, and her husband, Ryan Corgan. Four grandchildren, Marcel Liscano, Kylie Corgan, Savannah Leon, and Brady Corgan, as well as one great-grandchild, Camblin Luscano, her sister, Mary Ann Ruibal, and numerous nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her son, Michael Leon, her ex-husband, Lande Leon, her parents and siblings, Edimia Lobato, Benny Medina, Corey Garcia, Lucille Garcia, and Virginia Martinez. Garda's visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. tomorrow, Wednesday, March 8th, at Adamson, with the recitation of the rosary to begin at 6 p.m., Mass of Christian burial at 9.30 a.m. Thursday, <coughs> excuse me, Thursday, March 9th, at St. Peter Catholic Church. Interment at Lynn Grove Cemetery with a reception to follow at the church. Memorial gifts may be made to Catholic charities. Michael Keith Ryder, age 47, passed away Wednesday, February 22nd at Centura Longmont United Hospital after losing a very short battle with a liver condition. Mike was born on September 14, 1975, to John Markle Ryder and Paula Ann Ryder Krasik in Douglas, Wyoming. He was raised on the family ranch near Oren, along with his twin sisters, Nicole Ryder and Jennifer Ryder Page. Mike's formative years were heavily influenced by his time spent helping his maternal grandfather, George Eastman Carmen, on the family ranch, and by his paternal grandmother, Mary Margaret Elizabeth Ryder Bass, with whom he shared a deep connection. Mike was also influenced by his parents, John and Paula, learning the newspaper business, the Douglas Budget, which was in the Ryder family from 1949 to 1985. It was through these influences that Mike developed an unmatched work ethic. Growing up on the family ranch and submerged in the family newspaper business, Mike learned the significant importance that a job wasn't just a job, it was a passionate livelihood rooted in an unwavering commitment to excellence. This mentality was instilled into Mike from a very young age and was a mentality that he carried throughout his life. It was evident in every endeavor he pursued. Mike graduated from Douglas High School in 1993 and attended the University of Wyoming for a year before he transferred to Casper College, where he received a degree in business administration and management along with a welding certificate in 1997. Mike worked briefly for PDM Bridge, fabricating large freestanding water tanks for municipalities before he began a 23-year career with power equipment company, Pico, in Denver. Mike very quickly moved up the ranks with his attention to detail and dedication to accuracy. After starting as a welder, Mike moved to shop technician, a field service technician, then was promoted to field service manager in 2006. Mike became operations manager in 2013 and moved to director of internal affairs in 2017 with responsibility for the Denver shop and regional service manager. He was instrumental in the opening of Pico's Greeley branch and worked hard to ensure its success. Mike was not a person of many words, but when he did share something, it was profoundly accurate. His intellectual ability to remember parts numbers, he was a genius at that, it's something that will never be duplicated. His passion was his work. The skills and knowledge Mike acquired and passed on to other technicians is ongoing as Pico became part of his legacy. Mike is survived by his twin sisters, Nicole Ryder of Delray Beach, Florida, and Jennifer Ryder Page of Centennial, Wyoming. Stepfather David, Day, David J. Krejcik of Douglas, Wyoming. 
Uncle Greg and his wife Kathy Ryder of Greenwich, Connecticut. Aunts Donna and her husband Ed Ricks of Douglas, Wyoming. Jackie and her husband Craig Goodrich of Douglas, Wyoming. And Georgia Carmen of Laramie, Wyoming. Nephew Jackson W. Page of Elk Mountain, Wyoming. And cousins Elizabeth Ryder, Cass Sprague, Callie Plum, Garrett Ricks, Bart Goodrich, Brianna Andrine, Robin Palmer, Jay Palmer, and Brian Palmer. Mike also had an extensive network of friends and co-workers who became his family throughout his life, all of whom he immensely cherished. He was preceded in death by his father, John, on April 18, 1999, and his mother, Paula, on July 4, 2014. A family ceremony will be held at a later date. Timothy L. Tim Torres, age 62, of Greeley, passed away Friday, February 24th in Greeley. He was born December 15, 1960, in Longmont to Thomas Jose and Julia Ann Vasquez Torres. He grew up in the Berthet and Loveland areas and developed a deep appreciation for family at an early age that carried through his life. Tim graduated from Thompson Valley in 1979 and married Janet Clara Lobato on August 16, 1985, in Fort Collins. Tim was a very dedicated and generous gentleman. He gave selflessly, helping friends and strangers in many different situations. He developed a strong work ethic early on, working in silk screening, later in air freight in Denver and Utah, worked as a DJ for 15 years, and also for JBS as the wastewater supervisor. Lastly, for Leprino Foods as a wastewater technician. He loved music, played many different instruments, played in a band, the Timmy T and the Royals, and also performed with Rare Moment. He loved sports, baseball, hockey, NASCAR, being in the outdoors and fishing, but most enjoyed the time with his family, especially the grandkids. Faith was important in his life, receiving all the sacraments and a member of the St. Peter Catholic Church. Thankful to have shared his life are his wife Janet, children Rick Torres, Adam Torres, Timmy Torres, and Brittany Behrens. Nine grandchildren, Ricky, Noah, Mia, Sophia, Zayden, Zaley, Zinnia, Libby, and Ivy. Two more are expected. His parents, Tom and Julia Torres, his brother, Darren, and his wife, Lexi Torres, and their daughter, Adora, and his mother-in-law, Annie Lobato. A recitation of the rosary begins at 9 a.m., followed by the funeral mass at 9.30 a.m. this Friday, March 10th, at St. Peter Catholic Church. A reception will follow at Island Grove. And with that, our time is up. We thank you so much for joining us for today's reading of the Greeley Tribune this Tuesday, March 7th. My name is Mike Fearberg. Look forward to reading to you again next week. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.